Action. Previously on Blockbuster. Cut. That's good. That's good. Let's do it again. This line. Huh? I'll I'll be back. I'll Let's just say it ten different ways and one will work. We don't have a permit to film here, so. Are we supposed to have a permit? This just isn't what I envisioned. Think about how much better we are together. We're a team. Lou, Fox is dragging its feet. I, I don't think it's meant to be. I I'll fix this. Hello? Jamie, it's Jim Cameron, man. Jim! We'd really love for you to do the music for this Alien sequel. I'm Matt Schrader, and Blockbuster starts now. And cut. Cut. Back to one. Can we try that again? Sigourney, maybe a little more boss in your attitude here. Sort of uh, mm -hmm. sort of taking charge of the room with the guys, you know? Mm -hmm. Okay, sure. I can do that. That's 10 a.m. Pinewood Studios, London. Unlike in Hollywood, studios here came with the crew attached. This group in particular had worked on James Bond films, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, and, of course, Ridley Scott's Alien a few years ago. This 30-year-old James Cameron, now sporting a full grizzly beard, seemed to the crew a cheap imitation of a much better director like Ridley. And further, James was protected by his wife, the producer. Hey, we're losing our fog. What's going on? The hatch is open. Tea time. James turned to see the giant elephant door to the soundstage open, their haze from the fog machine pouring out of the room. And just outside, a little old lady pushing a tea trolley. Oh, what the fuck? James had never heard of such a thing. But in London, in addition to lunch, the crews would get regular tea and snack breaks at 10 and 2, something that had tormented George Lucas and so many American filmmakers when they'd filmed here. For 15 minutes, and only 15 minutes, twice a day, the crew would leave the stage completely abandoned to visit the tea trolley. It left James alone, annoyed, and falling behind his shooting schedule as they wasted time to refill the stage with fog every time. This is ridiculous. It's how they do it here. How am I supposed to finish on time? The crew actually seemed to take pleasure in James' increasing frustration, and a rift was forming. Look at Grizzly Adams over there. They would scoff at James on tea breaks, comfortable that he couldn't do anything about it. The Terminator hadn't yet come out in the UK, and they blew off James' invitations to watch the film so they'd be familiar with his work. And as a result, James was hardening into a tyrant. Hey, we need less light here. God damn it. We talked about yeah, this. Yeah, I just thought. That's my job. You're supposed to be executed. James was demanding and clashing with their production style and culture. Members of the crew started wearing t-shirts to set that said, you can't scare me, I work for James Cameron. What could James do about it but laugh, they thought. But as days started slipping away from his production schedule and the tea breaks added up, James was reaching a breaking point. Stop, stop. W what did I just tell you? I don't want the alien nest lit up like a Christmas tree. It's supposed to be dark. You can't see it. Yeah, that's the point. Things were getting especially heated with director of photography, Dick Bush, resulting in a very public altercation on set. Listen, Jim, that's my job. This is my profession. It's my movie. Jim, let's just calm down. Hey, Derek, you stay out of this. It was the first AD, Derek Cracknell, who many on this crew saw as the veteran and their crew leader. 
Derek had been close with Kubrick on The Shining. Now he was running interference, getting in the way of James' work. That's my fucking alien nest. I think I know how it's supposed to look. God damn it, Jim. I'm responsible for how it looks, not you. No, I'm responsible. It's my fucking name on the movie. You're on the payroll. Jim, that's enough. Let's just calm down. I will not be spoken to Jim, like I'm a- You're fired. I want you out. Gladly. Jim, you can't. Jim! What, Derek? You want to go too? That's inappropriate, Jim. Huh? I won't have it. Derek, I accept your two-week notice. I want you gone after that. God damn Ah. All right. Let's, uh, let's take a break, everyone. James could replace his cinematographer easily, but Derek was this crew's leader. In the middle of the day, in solidarity with Derek, the entire crew walked out, refusing to come back unless Derek did too. This would not make the executives happy. Gail, I want to move this out of London. We've already shot so much. It's a soundstage. <laughs> They're not going to let us move this back to the States, Jim. Then we get another crew. They're all shooting. There are no filmmakers in London? <sighs> Jim, the crews have to be with the studios, and they're all in use. Shit. So you're saying I have to go get them back? Yes, Jim. I think we have to. <sighs> okay. This is Blockbuster Season 2, The Story of James Cameron. Episode 6. All right, everyone. Thanks for coming in. Uh, I'll keep this short because I'll be honest, this is an embarrassing situation. I know we all don't see eye to eye. Uh, look, this is a really important movie to me. This is my first studio movie. We have an almost impossible shooting schedule. And, and I need everyone's help. I can't do this on my own. But I also can't have a situation where it seems like the crew is working to prove that the endeavor is going to be a failure. The town hall meeting on the alien soundstage would go two hours as different crew members aired their grievances. Finally, Derek Cracknell spoke. Jim, I just want to say, I don't think this production is running as smoothly as it could, but I appreciate you stepping up to say this today. And I can speak for the crew to say we accept your apology. And we will try to be more supportive of your vision going forward. James knew that was the best he would get. Okay, well, thank you all again. Let's come back here tomorrow refreshed. We'll get to it. James had defused a mutiny. The remainder of the film would be the most unpleasant experience of his life. He felt as though he was sacrificing parts of what it could be but at least it was getting made. James and Gail had rented a flat in London, 
and inside their living room was a Fairlight synthesizer. James had flown in Randy Frakes and their mutual friend Bob Garrett, who'd worked with them on the sound effects for Xenogenesis. What about something like, um... Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna try this. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. The sounds from James' living room would become the foundation for all of the digital technology in the film, and even Randy's voice for the alien queen. There was never much warmth between James and the crew, but on the final day of two and a half months of filming, James again huddled everyone in for a town hall meeting on the soundstage. Thanks, everyone. This has been a long and difficult shoot, uh, fraught with many problems. As you know, we worked through them. The one thing that kept me going through it all was the knowledge that one day I'd drive out of the gate of Pinewood Studios and never come back. <laughs> James smirked and looked over at Derek. He was laughing. And that you sorry bastards would still be here. <laughs> the feelings mutual. <laughs> uh, thank you all. James was only half joking. He would never film at Pinewood Studios again. While he was still stuck in London for post-production, he was grateful this part was over. James was getting positive feedback from studio executives who'd seen cuts of some of the scenes, but he'd fallen behind and the seven weeks he'd promised his composer, Jamie Horner, had shrunk to two. They were meeting today with Gail to review music from the latest cut of the film, now under a serious time crunch before recording with the London Symphony Orchestra. Uh, sorry we're late, Jamie. Hey, Jamie. Hello, Jim. Gail, listen. I got a new cut of the film and nothing's in sync. Yeah, we rearranged some shots. We really can't do that at such a late stage. I'd already written the music for that and we're recording in a few days. It was a nightmare for a composer. In two weeks, Jamie had written music perfectly timed to scenes, but now his music played at weird times through the film. And James and Gale hadn't bothered to tell him it would need to be rewritten. Uh, I don't know if I have time to make it do everything you want. I can get it maybe 75%, 80% of the way, but there's a lot of work here. Why can't we do what we talked about? I could, but I'd need four weeks at least. Four? No, that's out of the question. That's what it would take to have everything perfectly sync up. I'm just speaking from my own experience. Jim, we're down to five or six days. I can't change anything once it's written. It's never going to make it to the stands for the musicians. If I had more time, I could make it 100%, but we don't. Well, we'll just get somebody who can. Gail, are you kidding? The pressure was getting to everyone here in the final days. Look, if you can find somebody better able to produce this than me, I'd like to meet them. Because I'm sure I'll learn something. No, that's not what I meant. Listen, Jamie, I just about killed myself shooting this thing. Writing a melody takes two seconds. The hard part is weaving a carpet to the explosions, to the sound. I need 100% from you. I'll do my best, Jim. Jamie would be writing music up until the final recording day, including the music for the film's big climactic ending, which James had again shifted around in editing. Jamie worked through the night, recording the music the next morning. A miserable experience. 
and Jamie vowed he'd never again work with James Cameron. Jamie's music would go on to become an iconic part of Aliens and one of the most beloved and memorable scores of all time. The film would be a smash hit, more popular than Ridley Scott's original. It would earn back its $17 million budget in the opening week. James felt he finally had his first big hit. Fox held a friends and family screening. James invited his parents, hoping to impress his father, as well as his old pals Randy Frakes and Bill Wisher. After the screening, they had a small reception where everyone sensed a rising star in James, likely to earn his first Academy Award nomination for the film. Oh, Jimmy, I'm just so proud of you. Surely Cameron was always the expressive parent. His father, Philip, rarely showed any emotion and today seemed disinterested in an event celebrating his son's success. What'd you think, Dad? Huh? Oh, it was, it was very scary, yes. What? Your father liked the part about the Marines. Well, thank you guys for coming. I still can't believe we were building Roger those knockoff alien sets five years ago. Yeah, spray painting McDonald's Big Mac boxes. <laughs> well, hey, you fake it till you make it. <laughs> Look at you now. You've made it. James was the center of attention, and several people were waiting for a chance to talk to him. Gail was already talking with some executives and signaled for James to come over. Oh, I think I'm being summoned. Uh, excuse me one minute. Excuse me. Hey, guys. Yeah, I'm Philip, I'm going to get another drink. I will, too. Now, you be nice. All right. Randy and Philip were left standing next to each other, each with a bottle of beer in hand, watching James and Gail in the distance, talking to a group of executives. Randy gave Philip a little nudge. You know, Philip, you, you really got to be more supportive of Jim. He's doing great. Well, hard work pays off. Philip was into his late 50s, rigid and stubborn as ever, resolute that James was turning his back on his natural talents to make gaudy, empty fantasy movies. He's already done things that people take 25 years to get to. He could have been an incredible engineer. With a head like his, I'm just saying you really got to give him some praise. Just give him a pat on the shoulder. Say, you did a great thing. I'm impressed. Philip looked out at the swarm of Hollywood types lined up to talk to his son. It mean a lot to him. His face hardened. Well, I think he's got enough praise already. Aliens would receive universal praise from film critics, including the great Roger Ebert, who praised James' superb filmmaking craft. There was hype building for the Academy Awards. Typically, science fiction films were ignored for major awards, but this was a weak year in the Best Director category, and many felt James was about to receive his first nomination. He was watching the announcement on his TV at home. The Academy announced the nominees for each category, and James' crew on Aliens earned nominations in six different categories, and Sigourney Weaver became the first woman in a sci-fi movie to be nominated for Best Lead Actress, a breakthrough. In the next category, the nominees for Achievement in Direction. James leaned forward on his living room couch, anxious, as the five nominees were unsealed from the envelope and read on live television. Gail walked into the room. This best director? Yep. 
she sat down and put her arm around James. Woody Allen for Hannah and her sisters. Of course, Woody every year. Uh, is it alphabetical? I think it's random order. Oliver Stone for Platoon. Of course, of course. James Ivory for A Room with a View. Oh, come on. There were only two nominees left. Roland Yaffe for The Mission. Oh my God, come on, don't snub me. Come on. Gail felt a bit of dread creep in. And David Lynch for Blue Velvet. And those are the nominees for Achievement in Direction. They snub me. They snub me. It's because I'm not one of them. We beat all of them at the box office. Well, not Platoon, but fucking the mission? Nobody saw the mission. In our final category for the 59th Annual Academy Awards, here are the nominees for Best Picture. Best Picture was a producer's award. Aliens had already earned seven nominations, so this was one they were sure they'd get. Come on, baby. Platoon, platoon, we know. Platoon? Of course, that's a given. Children of a Lesser God, Bert Sugarman, and Patrick Palmer. Okay. Let's go, Aliens, Gail Hurd. Hannah and her sisters, Robert Greenhunt. Fucking Woody Allen. Jim. A Room with a View is... Oh, for fuck's sake. Come on! And the mission, Fernando Gia Ugh, you have got David to be kidding me! How was that possible? I don't know. What the hell? They were both shocked. They'd each come so close to the most prestigious award in entertainment that would transform their lives. And ended up with nothing. At least it felt like it. Hello. Hey, it's Randy. You see this shit? Total bullshit, man. You know how they hate sci-fi. Well, they love Sigourney. Yeah. This was gonna be the breakthrough, man. It's okay, Jim. James felt like a leaky cup with a hole in the bottom. Every time he'd fill it up, it would spill out again. All his hard work would vanish. What do I do now? You just do it again. Better. (laughs) Bigger. What's the point? My dad still thinks I'm being an idiot. Doesn't your dad realize that you can affect more people this way? He doesn't believe that. Who cares what he thinks then? He's wrong. Yeah. Look at Star Trek. How it's influenced so many people to become NASA engineers, join the space race, and get the education required to do that. You can inspire changes in the world through art. If you do it right. (laughs) I don't know if you can really ever change the world with a single movie. Are you kidding? Sure you can. And look, even if you can't, it's just one brick in the wall. There will be other movies to support it that that resonate with people. You create something and other people buy into those ideas. That's how I became the way I was. It wasn't just one movie. It was 15 or 20 movies that had a critical mass effect on me. Yeah, but I don't know if you can ever really change anybody with a movie. My dad's never going to get it. Why do you bother to do everything to perfection if you don't believe it? I don't know. Find your passion, man. Find the heart. Your head will make it great. The next few years of James' life would see radical changes. He was burned out, trapped by his own desire to prove himself. He and Gail began to drift apart. She began to produce other films on her own, and James isolated himself in his office at their Hollywood Hills home, working on his next film, titled The Abyss. Days passed where they would barely speak at all. 
James was married to his career first, and his longing to prove himself professionally would always be king. They both knew this marriage couldn't go on like this. Jim, do you have a minute? I, I, I'm in the middle of a... Jim. What's wrong? I think we should get a divorce. What? What, what do you mean? We don't spend time together like we used to. What are we doing? Is, is there someone else? Jim, of course not. We live together. Don't act like that. You know what I mean. I've put a lot of thought into this. Okay. We're each focused on our careers. I'm producing these movies, which I love. You're making The Abyss, which is going to be just incredible, I already know. Yeah. And we're making it. This is what we always wanted. But we're... roommates. This isn't a home. It's an office. It's become a burden for us. I know you feel that, too. James could always hide his emotions. He learned that from his dad. But now he was having trouble. He buried his face in his hands. There's never going to be a good time for this. Ugh. So, I think we really owe it to each other to be honest about this. Yeah. I don't want us to feel stuck in this and resent each other. Yeah. It's fine, Jim. Sometimes things don't work out. I'm sorry. I know. I'm sorry, too. I'd really like to stay friends. I'd like that, too. And you're still going to produce my movie. The Abyss is my movie. I'm the producer. <laughs> but of course, hmm. I wouldn't have it any other way. The Abyss would be their final film working together as a married couple. James began working even longer hours, days on end without sleep, just like his days at Roger Corman's studio. The Abyss would have to push harder, do more, be bigger and better. It would be the ultimate test of whether James' unparalleled work ethic, his trademark superpower, was enough to give his life meaning. Stay tuned for a preview of the next episode of Blockbuster and a short conversation about this episode. Hey, I'm Ross Marquand. I play the role of James Cameron in Blockbuster. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. On the next episode of Blockbuster, five, four, James makes his late-night debut with David Letterman. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to James Cameron. And James searches for his purpose. Oh, th th that's the ship? And finds it in a movie theater. Oh, well that, that's just amazing. That's coming up on Episode 7 of Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron. I'm series creator Matt Schrader. Hey, I'm the sound designer, Peter Bavitz. I'm producer, Elena Bavitz. And I'm Ross Marquand. I play the role of James in Blockbuster. And this is our creator chat about episode six. You just heard from Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron. This was one of the darker episodes of this season. We begin mm -hmm. with James finally filming this huge movie. It's got a big budget, yet the crew is fighting him. 
James is humbled here and, and has to learn how to collaborate with people who don't share that vision at all. In fact, many people who don't even respect him uh, compared to Ridley Scott's original, um, which they also worked on. And Peter, we had a lot of fun building out the arguments where he's firing people. I mean, when you told me that people actually uh, had T-shirts, you can't scare me, I work for James Cameron. Um, right. That was there was a moment where I realized, okay, well, we need to really make sure that comes through. And so, for example, as one of the things, we did it with our group. And we literally had people riff on different things that they could come up with uh, of just showing how little respect uh, some people had on set to James. And, of course, the tea, the little tea cart mm, uh, absolutely. coming in with scones and tea. And we did that with Loop Group also. It, I mean, we had it in season one, and it comes back in season two because, I mean, times don't change, and people don't change, and traditions don't change that fast. And, you know, we had George Lucas... Uh, deal with this when he was in London, and now James Cameron mm -hmm. had to deal well, with they, the they little didn't make break. the t-shirts the first time around, though. Oh. But if you do want a t-shirt that says "You can't scare me," I work for James Cameron. You can get it at our store now at getblockbuster.com. <laughs> That's right. Not yes. so subtle plug. They're beautiful. They say uh, season two on the back. Blockbuster season two, and then obviously the arguments. I mean, Jim comes in, he fires Dick Bush which is maybe the first time that we've seen him try to do something and and really fail because he's mm. too bold about how he does it. Yeah, I mean, it, he, he had a grand vision. He had uh, a goal that he wanted to achieve when making these movies. But at the same time, I think there was an issue with communicating uh, that vision and with getting people on board of it. Perhaps it was just the fact that he was a foreigner and certain people just didn't know what movies he made before and they treated him as, you know, this little American filmmaker uh, who, whom who, they didn't know. Who they didn't know. Ross, this is one of those scenes we recorded quite a few times mm -hmm. um, to try to find the right arc for that escalating frustration yeah. on set between James and his crew. Yeah, I think I think we just kind of eventually had to imagine being on that set and I, and I, you know, anybody who's ever been on set for, you know, 14, 16 hours a day realizes just how maddening and frustrating it can be. I can only imagine what it must have been like for, for James. And I just, I, I love that they're, we're, we're, we're showcasing this as a, as a real problem because it happens all the time. I mean, there's creative differences, you know, people, you know, try their best to, to see eye to eye, but there's just sometimes where people don't. And it is interesting here because nobody really, except for maybe James and, and Gail and Heard, mm -hmm. think that this is going to be a big movie. Well, I think it's a testament to, and I, and I know Gail because she obviously is with, uh, yep. main EP on, on Walking Dead and, 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 you know, knowing her for, you know, six years now, I can tell you, um, She's a perfectionist. She wants everything to be great. I'm based on everything I've heard about James. I know that that is, you know, the same for him. So, I, I just think when you watch a movie like Aliens, it's so perfect from the moment it starts, the first frame. I mean, just just even that 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 you know, um, the first scene with Paul Reiser, you know, when he's talking to Ripley, and it's just yep. this beautiful long setup, and then we. We just, you know, the, the fervor with which Ripley just says, I know androids, you know, um, it's just it's just beautiful from start to finish. It's a it's a I think it's a perfect film. I think from a cinematic perspective, if nothing else, if it you know, it should have won almost every single 
technical award. Acting-wise, too, I mean, Sigourney Weaver and Michael Bean and and uh, just the supporting cast, Bill Bill Paxton. I mean, like, you, you could not ask for a better cast, I think. And Sigourney just sells it with every single frame. She just invests mm-hmm. so much of herself in that character. I think it's her best work, honestly. And this is his first taste of this big success, you know, being a big filmmaker. At the same time, there's still a lot of tension between... Uh, James and his dad, Philip, who who doesn't want to condone James' career in film. He still thinks this is unwise. This isn't something that's reliable. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's wonderful. I, I loved uh, delving into his past with this episode because you really get to see the the impact of family on on a person's dreams and ambitions. Um, you know, who, it's just it's astonishing to me to think that we could have lost James Cameron as a filmmaker if he had decided to stick with what his parents had planned for him. And I think any artist uh, wrestles with that, too. My parents certainly were hoping I was going to go into business. Um, and, I, and that's what I was doing for the first two years of college. I was I, I thought, you know what, I'm in Colorado. There's probably not opportunities for me for what I want to do out here. So play it safe, do the business thing. And I, and I honestly hated it so much that I had to at least try out for the BFA and see if what might come of that. And luckily it worked mm-hmm. out, but you know, so many artists, um, they're, they're, they're trying their entire lives to make things work and you, there's no guarantees. In fact, there's a statistically speaking, a bigger chance that it's not going to work out. So thank God James had the the passion and the fervor and the, and, and the talent, frankly, to keep with it, even though his father was certainly uh, trying to get him to pursue other avenues. Of course, Randy Frakes, the end of this episode, mm. trying to cheer James up, keep keeping him inspired to do great things. And we'll be back here for another creator chat after the next episode, uh, episode seven of Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron. For now, thank you to uh, Ross Marquand, of course, starring as James Cameron in this series, Elena and Peter Baviets. And I'm Matt Schrader. Thanks for listening, telling a friend about the series, and be sure to rate and review Blockbuster wherever you get your podcasts. Blockbuster is written and narrated by me, Matt Schrader. Sound design by Peter Bavietz. Original music by Fernando Arroyo Lascarain. Produced by Elena Bavietz. Starring Ross Marquand. For more on Blockbuster, follow us on social media at BlockbusterPod. Or visit us online to support the creators at getblockbuster.com. Blockbuster is an original production of Epiclef Media.